Welcome to the first British Studies Seminar of the Fall Semester 2006. Uh, this is a landmark in the history of the seminar because, as you can see, the three of us here at the head table are wearing uh, microphones. British Studies has entered the 20th century, if not the 21st. We are now establishing a, a, a sound archive. Each of the uh, uh, sessions from now on will be recorded. Uh, believe it or not, we also have a British Studies website that is going up next uh, Wednesday. Uh, this is indeed <laughs> a revolutionary uh, uh, development, uh, as is, for quite a different reason, the session this afternoon. Uh, the two speakers are Kurt Heinzelman, professor of English, and Michael, uh, Michael Charmsworth, Charmsworth, the uh, uh, historian of art. Uh, Michael is actually a junior fellow in British Studies. Uh, British, the junior fellows program in uh, uh, British Studies is somewhat of a metaphysical concept. Once you are a junior fellow, even you become uh, old and famous, as in the case of uh, Michael, you are still always a junior fellow. Uh, now, the reason that the uh, session this afternoon is also uh, a landmark is because some people have uh, actually read the poem and have expressed amazement that people have actually come to the session this afternoon. Uh, now there was a certain amount of comedy in all of this because when uh, Kurt first mentioned to me the topic for this afternoon's session, it was at the same time that the movie V for Vendetta was playing and I thought somehow uh, that the session was going to be about the happy anarchism associated with Sidney Monas. Uh, it turned out <laughs> to be something, it was a wonderful movie, by the way, uh, something to be quite different. Uh, somehow, though, I thought that uh, the uh, Churchill's V sign uh, would be a quite appropriate way to greet Kurth whenever I saw him here in the halls of the, uh, uh, the HRC, and I was reminded that when... Uh, uh, Churchill start, first started giving his V-sign, uh, one of his ministers said, no prime minister, you can't do that. Uh, v in Turkish is an obscenity. Uh, that rather stirred uh, Churchill on because it reminded him of Gallipoli, of course, and so he took great pleasure uh, in the V-sign. Uh, and whenever I would see uh, Kurt here, I would always greet him with a V, uh, and little did I know, or little did he know, that he was getting a Turkish obscenity. Uh, while this does, in a way, seem to be very appropriate for the uh, poem this afternoon, I find this very funny, uh, ironic, uh, because uh, British studies has always been considered to be among, among the most staid of the liberal arts uh, programs. And here we are, uh, beginning our first broadcast uh, with the poem, uh, V. Uh, Kurt, I will let you begin with this. And where is our podium? Here it is. Yes, I'm not sure we need it. Um, I have several extra copies of the poem, if anybody needs it. No? Okay. Here, oh, yes. Okay. Um, actually, Michael is going to begin. Yeah, pass okay. me. Shall I begin? You, you shall. Right. So let's, please. 
Uh, well, I won't need uh, it, really. Shout out to Lady Michael, because oh. the acoustics of oh. the room... Right. Should uh, I stand up? Yes. Roger. Well, just a moment, then. And... <sighs> well, um... I should say, we're going to do some terrible swearing up at this end of the room, you know. Uh, the effing and blinding you're going to hear is nothing on earth. So I will understand if sensitive souls have to depart in the middle because it's all too much. And uh, I'm not quite sure really why we're discussing V at, at this particular time. Is there a reason for this, Kurt? You got me into this. I asked you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> is there any reason why 2006 in particular? Yes, but they're not, uh, they're recording. They're not broadcasting they're not, to they're you, They're not amplifying. Not right. Not That's the next step, Sid. That comes. <laughs> it's the next Patience. entry. Patience, <laughs> Christian. So that's a no, is it, Kurt? There's no particular reason no particular why 2006. Reason. No. Right. Um, but my job, really, since I um, lived in the West Yorkshire coal field from 1978 to 1984, and the poem was written in 1985 about, ev about events, or at least alluding to events of the previous year, my job is really to give some context for the poem, to start with, um, and then we'll hear um, an, an extract of Tony Harrison reading uh, some of the... Well, and then I'll... Kurt will make some statements, and then we'll hear Tony Harrison reading part of the poem. Um, so the context really was, obviously, that Mrs Thatcher had won the election in 1979 after three years of possibly the most inert and do-nothing government that anybody could remember, the Labour government of Jem James Callaghan, um, possibly the most feeble Prime Minister that we had. I, I understand I'm trying to give you the context of how things felt back in 1984. And whatever we may say now about Mr Callaghan, few kind things were said about him on either side back in 1984. I remember the election. I remember it was the Conservative slogan was Labour isn't working, wasn't it? The posters had Labour isn't working with queues of people standing next to miles of rubbish in the streets. And I can remember the Labour poster, which had a picture of Mr Callaghan with the slogan, the Labour way is the better way, which sounded a bit like some sort of grammar problem in primary school. But anyway, it had no you know, ability to reach the electorate who presumably felt that some energy was going to be preferable to five more years of total inertia and voted the Conservatives in. Mrs Thatcher becoming the least popular Prime Minister we'd ever had, ever. Um, and, um, and then the uh, Argentines obligingly invaded the Falkland Islands, enabling her to score her greatest victory in 1982 and to become the most popular Prime Minister we'd ever seen ever. So um, she um, then um, w went into the process of really uh, dismantling or attempting to dismantle the coal mining industry of Britain on the grounds that we no longer needed the coal. It's not so much that the coal was old-fashioned or that it was warming the globe up. It was just that um, we didn't need it for economic reasons. 
Now, she had prepared for this by, um, as soon as being elected in 1979, she had um, greatly enlarged recruitment into the police force um, on the wave of money that she unleashed to the police. Um, something in the order of a 35% pay rise was awarded to the police within her first year. So, um, at the same time, she was quite happy in that first year to concede to the miners a 32% pay rise when they made put in their demand, a demand that had become sort of habitual, really, after the struggles with the previous Conservative government of the early 1970s. But the miners, in accepting this pay rise, made a Faustian bargain with the National Coal Board because... Um, they agreed to productivity increases, which meant that they produced more coal than we consumed, and by the end of 1983, there were great big stockpiles of coal all over the place, just ready for the central electricity generating board to use in the power stations to create the electricity that the country needed. So when the miners went into their strike in the winter of 1983 to 1984, they were up against this huge uh, difficulty, unlike the previous successful miners' strikes of ten years earlier, of having all these giant heaps of coal all, all over the country, um, so that um, by the, you know, the strike could last all winter long, and then at the beginning of the spring, when demands for electricity uh, were lessened, the stockpiles of coal were finally becoming exhausted. So it made a huge, great... The miners dug themselves into a huge, great hole, really, by agreeing to the productivity deal part of the bargain back in 1979. And it reflects the fact they didn't have a particularly brilliant leader. He was uh, a sort of um, a bit of a showman, really, and in this, he was always getting himself on television. Arthur Scargill, who came from Barnsley, um, but he wasn't necessarily the greatest strategic thinker that the miners had ever had. So um, he didn't really seem to have much of a response to the difficulties of the strike other than to appeal for a, a more general strike among the working population. And it all ended sort of badly for the miners, of course. But I should say that the country was absolutely split down the middle uh, between people who wanted to try to help the miners um, sending food, joining picket lines and, um, uh, and trying to put pressure on the government from that side of things and those who just wanted to see them, their power broken and them swept away. And so the country was completely split down the middle. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, after a rather contentious decade of the 1970s in which various splits uh, within the population became apparent based on politics, based on class, and based on race, particularly. It's, a, it's quite a contentious decade, the 1970s, and this was really the kind of logical conclusion, really, to, the, to that, what you might call the long decade. Um, so that's some of the background uh, to the poem being uh, written in 1985, the poet's response, really, to uh, visiting his parents' grave in Leeds, where he came from, is a Yorkshireman, Tony Harrison, and um, finding it uh, marked up by somebody with a spray tin of paint. Uh, Tony Harrison himself got away from Leeds and is famous, of course, for his theatrical translations of the ancient Greek 
plays, for the librettos that he um, wrote for Harrison Birtwistle's operas, and for other really high culture stuff that he did down in London, bastion of high culture, having got away from Leeds and having two houses, one in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, even further north than Yorkshire is, and one in Florida. So he made a brilliant success of learning, really. Is that, is yeah, that, that's is that okay? Yeah. Uh, what I'm going to do now is just um, give a, <clears throat> a very brief um, um, interpretive paraphrase of the poem for those of you who didn't have a chance to read it. This will be very short. And <clears throat> my synopsis will take us up to the point at which we're going to listen to Harrison perform the poem. And that will take us two-thirds of the way through the poem, and then we'll um, start talking about the last third, which to me is, the, is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, it's the difficult, tonally difficult part of the, the poem. <clears throat> um, Tony Harrison uh, is a rare example in the modern world of a poet who makes his living as a writer and not as a university creative writing teacher, um, which a, fa a fact that may be of some significance to this poem, um, which is a poem in some sense about victory, about what constitutes victory, the victory of one kind of writing over another, um, one class over another. He was born in 1937 in Leeds, and he grew up there, eventually reading classics at Leeds University. He subsequently lectured in Nigeria and Prague, and was for several years the resident dramatist at the National Theater. As Michael has mentioned, he's an opera librettist. He's also a translator. Um, one of his most notable works was the Oresteia that he translated for Peter Hall at the National Theater. That's the one that's done with the white masks. It's on film if you ever want to see it. And uh, as Michael also mentioned, he uh, lives in, uh, now in England and Florida and is married. This is important for the poem. He's married to the opera singer Teresa Stratus, who's one of whose famous roles was Lulu in the Alban Berg opera. The speaker of V, Harrison's poem of 448 lines written in rhymed quatrains, identifies himself as a leadsman and a poet. Indeed, he identifies himself as Tony Harrison. The poem begins with his visit to the Beeston Hill Cemetery in Leeds, where his parents are buried. The family plot, which is placed among the plots for Butcher, Publican, and Baker, for Wordsworth, the church organ builder, Byron, the leather worker, and Appleyard, the haberdasher, has one space left, presumably waiting for, as the poet puts it, me, Bard. This is the same cemetery he used to visit regularly as a boy with his father, but the many differences between then and now quickly start to add up. Harrison is not now a regular visitor, but a transient one, catching a memorial moment here before he catches the train back to London, where he lives. The gravestones have tipped even more because of the subsidence of the earth under them. The cemetery is built on a hill underneath which are old mine, coal mines. The stones are even more marked than ever before with graffiti, obscenities written by Leeds United fans, quote, taking a shortcut home through these graves here who reassert the glory of their team 
by spraying words on tombstones pissed on beer. And the demographics of Leeds has become increasingly less Anglo, more colored, and more Muslim. Roughly the first third of the poem is a monologue. It is the Orwellian year, 1984, the start of what would be a major coal miner strike, and the narrator is thinking deep liberal thoughts about his own mortality, he is nearing 50, and the polarities that divide us, and these are some that he mentions. Man v. wife, communist v. fascist, left v. right, class v. class, Hindu Sikh, soul body, heart be mind, east west, us them, and of course, Leeds v. Darby. The poet intimates that his poem, this pen's all I have of magic wand, he says, is his highbrow attempt to make sense of why these, quote, kids use aerosols to tag everything in sight and what their outlaw writing has to do with the decomposition he sees all around him. At this point, one of those skinhead yabos with a spray can suddenly enters the poem and engages the poet in a dialogue, a dialogue in which many readers have found the skinhead gets the upper hand. And it's at this point uh, that I would like to turn to Tony Harrison's reading of the poem. This is a reading, as Michael mentioned, the poem was published in 1985. It was published in the London Review of Books, so of course almost no one read it. It was then, several years later, made into a film that was shown on uh, Channel 4. And it was at this point that the, that the um, that the poem really acquired some notoriety, and particularly for this s section that we're about to hear, where the skinhead uh, speaks in his um, demotic language, and Harrison responds uh, in the same in the same diction. Um, <clears throat> the, this recording is taken off the film, so it's not pristine quality, but I think you'll be able to to hear what's happening. Um, and as I say, this is the moment at which Harrison's own monologue is disrupted, disrupting the whole shape of the poem from here on out. The white up the spray can do the same. The wine scribe these graves with coat and shit. Why choose neglected tombstones? Um, we're at line 150 if you uh, have a lined text. And as I say, it's a, this is about oh, a third of the way into the poem. If you have the text I passed out, it's the upper left side of page 596. Okay? And he's just asked these big questions. Why inscribe these graves with content shit? Uh, he's just said, why inscribe these graves with cunt and shit? Why choose neglected tombstones to disfigure? Okay? This pitman of last century told packing it 
this gross of broadbent hair sound is near. They're there to shock the living, not arouse the dead from their deep peace, to lend support for the causes and heads break and to their power. The dead would want their desecrators caught. Jobless though they are, how can these kids, even though their teams lost one more game, believe that the packies, niggers, even yids sprayed on the tombstones here should bear the blame? What is it that these crude words are revealing? What is it that this agro act implies, giving the dead their xenophobic feeling, or just a creed occur because man died? Sir, what's a creed occur, cunt? Can't you speak the language that your mum spoke? Think of her. Then I get your tongue out, fucking Greek. Go and fuck yourself with creed occur. She didn't talk like you do for a start. I shouted, turning where I thought the voice had been. She didn't understand your fucking art. She thought your fucking poet helped sing. I wish on this skinned word aspiration. First a prayer for my parents I can't make, and a call to Britain and to all the nations, made in the name of love, for peace's sake. Aspirations, cunt. Folk on fucking dole have got about as much scope to aspire above the shit they're dumped in, cunt, as coal aspires to be chucked on fucking fire. Okay, forget the aspirations. I know United losing gets you fans in sense, and how far the heart inside you makes you go. But all these bees, again, again, again. I'll tell you then, what really roused the blood. It's reading on their graves, the jobs they did. Butcher, publican, and baker. May our crow do insane now to him now, the kid. Hard birth I lost in nonsense. It almost killed her. Dead after life on dual won't seem as hard. Look at this Wordsworth organ builder. This fucking Aberdasher apple yard. If my mum's up there, don't want to meet her. Listening to me listening to dirty deeds. And after five up to ten fucking beat her. I've been on dual all my life. In fucking leads. Then hallelujah's stick in angels' dogs. And dull wallets put off to the void. What well, mason carve up for their jobs? But come to lie up here, we're unemployed. This lot worked at one job all life through. Byron, Tanner, lie up here interred. They'll chisel fucking poet, and they do you. And that you cunts, a crude, four letter word. Listen, cunt. Before you start your jeering, the reason why I want this in a book is to give ungrateful cunts like you a hearing. That book, you stupid cunts, not worth a fuck. The only reason why I write this poem at all on jobs like you who do the dirt on death is to give some hyamune to your straw. Don't fucking bother, cunt. Don't waste your breath. You, piss artist. You wouldn't know, and it doesn't fucking matter if you do. A skin and poet united, fucking Rambo, with the ultra, the je hais, this fucking 
Right. <clears throat> so, um, this uh, apparently antagonistic confrontation um, reveals that the um, skinhead is actually an other or brother poet or doppelganger or secret sharer or whatever you want to call him. And then the poem again reverts to monologue, but with a newly urgent need to explain publicly what, as a man, a husband, and a poet, that is, as a mainly middle-class but culturally elitist Leeds expatriate, Harrison believes in. The poem ends with intimations of his own mortality, and like the poem that is one of Harrison's overt models, namely Thomas Gray's Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard, the poet closes by penning his own epitaph. Now, um, what I hope we can, um, we can spend some time talking about is the, the aftermath of this, of this confrontation um, in which Harrison, the speaker, realizes that he is more united with this skinhead than he can imagine. Uh, and in fact, the first sign of his of his union with him is that he uh, he picks up the uh, the uh, language uh, the language that the uh, that the uh, guy is using and um, tries to outdo him. Although I think I think myself that the skinhead has the better lines all the way through. Um, you know, I told you, uh, no more Greek is just a great line. <laughs> you think I'm fucking dumb? Uh, <laughs> um, at least one of the issues at stake here is um, who owns the act of writing? Who owns the act of writing? And why does it matter um, to even raise the question? And I just want to remind you that historically, um, writing is a skill that has been taught and learned through long apprenticeship. At scribal skills is not something that is taken lightly, historically speaking. It's only really in the, the post-computer uh, era where penmanship, for instance, is no longer taught in schools, um, where my space is your space and anyone can blog, that the question of who owns the act of writing uh, becomes newly urgent. Um, what the computer has done, what the keyboard has done, is to utterly democratize um, this, this act. Um, and in fact, Harrison uh, goes on to say, look, uh, um, he signed his name and it was mine. His last name is Harrison, too. Harrison says, uh, you know, I've seen my name in neon lights um, in, on Broadway and on the spines of books. He says, why shouldn't he sign you know, sign the tombstone. What's the, big, what's the big deal here? Why am I so aggroed about all this aggro, is in effect what Harrison asks. Um, I think, actually, Michael and I look at the ending of the poem somewhat differently. Um, I, see the, I see the last half of the poem, the last third of the poem, as a, as a, a, a profound retreat on Harrison's part from the questions that he raised prior to the intervention of the skinhead. And those questions are stated most clearly 
at lines 160 and 162 in the passage we just heard. What is it that these crude words are revealing? What is it that this agro act implies? Giving the dead their xenophobic feeling or just a creed occur because man dies? And he's preceded those questions by saying that he believes the dead would want their desecrators caught. Um, what happens uh, at the end of the poem is that, um, is that Harrison uh, tries to out-yabo the yabo by writing an epitaph that contains its own desecration. Um, for those of you who haven't read uh, to the end, let me just, uh, let me just take you there. Um, let me pick up about uh, six, seven stanzas from the, from the end. Um, remember, this is 1984, um, so he is thinking millennial thoughts. He's thinking um, those deep Orwellian thoughts about what the big future holds. And he says, next millennium you'll have to search quite hard to find out where I'm buried, but I'm near the grave of Haberdasher Appleyard the pile of harps or some new neoned beer. Find Byron Wordsworth or turn left between one grave Mark Broadbent, one Mark Richardson. Bring some solution with you that can clean whatever new crude words have been sprayed on. If love of art or love gives you a front that the grave I'm in's graffitied then, maybe erase the more offensive fucking cunt, but leave with the worn united one small V. Victory? for vast, slow, coal-creating forces that hew the body's seams to get the soul. Will, will Earth run out of her diurnal courses before repeating her creation of black coal? But choose a day like I chose in mid-May or earlier when apple and hawthorn tree no matter if boys boot their ball all day, cling to their blossoms and won't shake them free. If having come this far, somebody reads these verses and he, she wants to understand, face this grave on Beeston Hill, your back to Leeds, and read the chiseled epitaph I've planned. Beneath your feet's a poet, then a pit. Poetry supporter, if you're here to find how poems can grow from, beat you to it, shit. Find the beef, the beer, the bread, then look behind. <clears throat> now, um, which is, of course, a classic working class put down. I mean, what he's saying is, I got away, you know, I got my education, I got away. I don't have to stay in mouldy old Leeds with you lot, where everything's changing and the world that you knew or that my father knew is disappearing and um, immigrants are moving in and everything's changing. I got out. It's a classic working class triumphal gesture. Sort of a rude gesture in the face of everybody who failed to get out. It's basically what the poem does. It's what the poet does. It's the poet's epitaph. Right. Um, and uh, the, that was quite, it was quite surprising to me really to um, to come back to this poem after so long and realize that. Um, so on one level, there's that. But he also, the, the 
last third of the poem acknowledges that he can't do without the skinhead inside him. Um, he goes home, he hangs up his clothes, it's all really nice. He talks about love and he says, a voice that scorns chorales is yelling, Wanker! It's the aerosoling skin I met today's. So the person is inside him. The skins united underwrites the poet. And as well as being about ownership of writing, this poem is surely also about ownership of speech in the sense that it was immensely controversial to broadcast it on BBC Two, I think it was, or Channel Four, yeah, maybe, back in 1980-something or other. I mean, I don't know whether in the context of 2006 the language seems just, you know, more ordinary, more tame, because we've heard so much more of it all the time in, throughout the culture, or, or not. But in a sense, and in a sense, you could also um, relate it to Wordsworth's arguments a long time ago about how the language of poetry has to be the, the language of the common man. This is a, a classic endorsement of that, I suppose, in another way. Um, so it's quite a complicated relationship that he has with, and, it, and that skinhead, had he got away from Leeds, would himself t have turned round and made a triumphal gesture to everybody who didn't get out. You know, if he'd gone away and been successful, as Harrison was, and made lots of money, that would have been his response too. So, um, but it's, it's, it's prefaced by a very long section where he meditates on the state of the world, really. Um, I don't, I, I see the first section of the poem as being sort of wishy-washy liberal response to the fact that somebody's vandalized his parents' grave. And he goes through all these, you know, tedious pink posturing about, oh, it's not really their fault, you know. He does realize that the dead would want their desecrators caught. He does realize that much. But it's, maybe this is a critiquer because of the human condition or something. And then the, the encounter with the skinhead who sort of surges into view throws all that out, really. And then he's thrust back on what he does believe in, which is love. When the hawser of the blood tie is hacked and frayed, what's left for us, he says, is love. But even that is, that meditation is disturbed by the skinhead's voice, whose aerosoled vocab, he said, would balk at love. Um, so the last third of the poem, when I listened to this again last week, I was astonished at how it dwelt upon the kinds of polarized, you know, political conflict that he, um, we are very much living with. I mean, he uses the television news as a way of, you know, figuring or bringing onto center stage all the conflicts of the world, which he's sort of previewed in, in the part that you read us. Um, but uh, it seemed to be a stunning sort of um, statement about the entire you know, quarter century or something that we've had, uh, and that's not quite as long as that, 21 years we've had since it was, it was written. We are in the middle of problems which are just emerging and prefigured by this, and, or in some cases have just shifted their geographical location. Um, so, so I found it c quite a satisfying poem on the level that there, uh, he doesn't 
indicate any kind of easy solution to this. He, m he may endorse, you know, John Lennon's thing, all you need is love, but um, uh, at the end of the day, it's also a very lonely kind of position because could, to consider that a lot of this is set in a graveyard, there's no intimation of any spiritual or religious compensation or response. Oh, uh, that's, that's for sure. There's no, yeah, there's no, uh, Harrison himself doesn't believe in a post-mortal solution to any of the polarities that are talked about in the poem. But I would, I would just suggest that there's a difference between um, saying that he believes that love compensates for everything and actually persuading us that that is the case. Uh, I mean, there is a there's a facetious quality about the conclusion of the poem um, in which he, he says, well, I'm going home, home to my woman, home to my hearth, home to where I live, and we're going to put on Lulu and listen to uh, Teresa Stratus um, sing high Ds that uh, will um, crack the stratosphere. He makes that pun. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, and uh, you could, also, you could also say that what the poem is doing is not acknowledging his inner yabo, his inner skinhead, but trading on the language, the demotic language of the streets in order to uh, make, a, uh, make a poem that is, um, that is controversial and uh, can get made into a film. I mean, there's a sense in which there's a co-option that's going on here. Even as, even as uh, Harrison is saying goodbye to Leeds, turning his back on it in every significant way, um, he's exploiting it, um, using it to, to fuel, to throw coal on his own highbrow fire. And he keeps on going... Um, in this elusive vein, right down to the to the last, um, the quotation from Wordsworth at the end: "Will Earth run out of her diurnal courses?" Well, who's supposed to get that exactly? <laughs> um, and uh, uh, well, many uh, many others. Uh, there are many other uh, allusions and quotes that are going on here that require um, n not a yabo reader, but uh, the likes of us. So I'm, I'm suspicious of that ending, even though I, I think Michael's right that, he's, that, it's, a, that it's a put down. Um, I don't know whether it's a put down in, the, in a loving spirit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, here, to talking about this here, we should endorse what he says in a way. He says, you know, when you, look, when you face the graves of the other family members who are bakers and butchers and... Uh, Publicans, um, and then you turn round in the graveyard and look the other way. You see the institutions of learning that got him the education that took him out of this, which is what we should endorse. Really, we should have no problem with that. Really. Sure. Um, but here's what I mean by the facetious quality and the kind of one-upsmanship that, for me, uh, give the poem a, a finally a kind of facetious. Um, or, or uh, annoyingly elitist feel. 
remember when the Yabo takes one of those V's and draws the slit in it? And of course he's making an obscenity. But, but Harrison knows, and everyone who came to the Technologies of Writing exhibition down in the Ransom Gallery knows, that that V with a slit in it is the Sumerian word for woman. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the kind of jokey stuff that is going on all the time in the poem, like the reference to the year 1984. We are supposed to hear Orwell. We are supposed to hear Orwell. We're supposed to understand diurnal courses, Wordsworth. Not the Wordsworth who's the church organ builder, but you know, that other guy that me, Bard, is competing with. Um, and I don't think that the poem ever relinquishes that kind of almost kind of fraternity boy one-upsmanship tone. See, here's where Michael and I are. You're overstating okay, well, we this, Kurt. Okay. Uh, well, what, what, is, what is your uh, take, folks, on this poem? I, I think it's quite an interesting uh, and uh, justly controversial 